theologically minded. That's called the regulative principle of worship. There's another principle of worship called the normative principle of worship, but I don't want to have a Bible study. Let's go um, Acts 17. This is a huge um, section of scripture for me. I'm gonna, I'll give it my college try. I, I know I've been kind of creeping through the book of Acts. After I finish Acts, I'm going to have to find something else. So, but I have been creeping through Acts, um, just, I guess, my method. Um, I'm going to try to make it through. Th- this is a unit. Um, I could legitimately take it 1621, 22 to the end, but I want to take it as a unit. Paul's preaching in Athens, and we're going to see what we can see here. But uh, verse 16, hear the perfect word of our perfect God. Now, while Paul was waiting for them, um, Silas and Timothy, in Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. He was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. Also, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. Some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? Others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. They took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is which you are proclaiming? For you are bringing some strange things to our ears, and we want to know what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. While I was passing through and examining the object of your worship, I also found an altar with the inscription to an unknown god. Therefore what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, he does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. He made from one man every nation, mankind, to live on the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. And in him we live and move and exist, and even as some of our poets have said, uh, as your own poets have said, we are also his children. Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. When they heard of the resurrection of the dead, they began to sneer. Others said, we shall hear you again concerning this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom were also Dionysus, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others um, with them. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Almighty God. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your day. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would have mercy upon me as the proclaimer, the preacher. I would rightly divide. The content would be the content of the Bible, even my tone and 
Lord, my countenance would be pleasing in your sight and profitable to your people. Give all of us the requisite measure of faith that we would repent of our sins and we would believe in you, Jesus, as the only atoner and savior of our sins. If there are any who have come into this worship service this morning that heretofore are still dead in their sins and trespasses, Holy Spirit, that you would take this wonderful gospel message and you would convert them to Christ. Build up your kingdom. Destroy the kingdom of the devil. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I I mentioned I was at the wedding and I was talking with some minister friends of mine and one of my minister friends is preaching the book of Acts in the evening. And so I said, well, I'm going through Acts in the morning. I said, what do you think? He said, it's so redundant. And this week, Paul's in one place and people are converted to Christ. And the next week, he's in another place and they're converted to Christ through the preaching of the cross. I said, well, that's true. It is true. Because the book of Acts is about the um, actual, the obedience to the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28, 18 to 20. Go out to the whole nations and tell everybody about me and then make disciples. And then from Acts 1, 8, it starts in Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, and then everywhere. And the book of Acts is about the, the Holy Spirit filling the servants of Christ to take the gospel of Christ everywhere. But it's not entirely true that every single week, I mean, I wish it would, I could just go click and then every week I could just hit rewind for my sermon and then play golf and eat fried chicken for the rest of the week. But there, there is enough stuff here for us that's different. And so we, we've had Paul preaching in one place. Some people receive Christ. They love him. They open up their homes like Lydia. And, the, and so they want other people to receive Christ. They bring them to their friends. Tell my friends and my loved ones about Christ. People that love and receive Christ as he's offered in the gospel want other people to love and receive Jesus Christ as he's offered in the gospel. They do. If you're a mother and you love Jesus, the people that you want to love Jesus as much as, if not more than you, are your children. And I don't care if your baby's three or he's 33. You want them to love Christ. But conversely, what we've seen thus far is people that reject Jesus as he's offered in the gospel, they don't believe. They also don't want other people to believe. They don't want you to gospel, be a gospel-er to their family and friends. So believers want other people to believe, be believers. Unbelievers want other people to be unbelievers. So as a pastoral application, be careful when you're online watching Bob the unbeliever or Sally the unbeliever, whatever they may be, you know, Joe Hudson Frutz with his po- podcast, he's an unbeliever. He wants you to be an unbeliever. When Jesus is presented, he doesn't want you to believe. And so the unbelievers chase off the Apostle Paul. He was in Thessalonica. He was up in uh, Berea. He, he, was, uh, he was in Philippi. He went uh, 100 miles to Thessalonica. And then he went another 45, 50 to, to uh, Berea. And then they're going to kill him in Berea. And off he goes. So everywhere they chase the Apostle Paul, he runs, and wherever he runs to, he, it's another platform to, to share the Lord Jesus Christ. Who was it? Was it Tertullian that said the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church? Something like that. Wherever you chase a Christian to, wherever they're at, they're gospeling. They're giving away Jesus. This, so the devil means to crush the church, to crush Christians, to crush Christ. And in God's alchemy, it's the very same thing that flourishes the gospel of the Lord Jesus in the church. So now they've chased him from all of these different places, and he finds himself in Athens. 
And so the general subject is what? Preaching Christ in Athens. Wherever he goes, this is what my friend said. We see it in the text. What what, what is he preaching when he's preaching in Athens? He's preaching Christ. He's not preaching this. He's not preaching this secondary or tertiary things. I'm not saying that Paul doesn't talk on secondary or tertiary things. He does. But he talks about them in a secondary or tertiary manner. In other words, when he goes gospeling, particularly to unbelievers... Let's just say I were to send you as a Christian. You're going to go to Fred the heathen. When you go to see Fred the heathen, even if you bleed Presbyterian, I mean, you believe in Presbyterian polity, church government, like nobody's business. When you meet Fred the heathen, don't talk about Presbyterian church government. You know what to talk about? Jesus. Jesus. And then when Fred is converted, then you can tell him not to be a Baptist, not to be a Congregationalist. He should believe in Presbyterian polity. Then you can have that discussion. You see what I mean? So when you find him preaching with the heathen about Christ in the resurrection, this is spot on. This is spot on. Not those other things don't have another place. Of course they do. I read 1 Corinthians. You know, the whole way that the church structure, read the first three chapters of Ephesians are the doctrinal part, and then the last three chapters are the practical part. So there, certainly there is that. But when you're talking to an unbeliever, and you know you're talking to an unbeliever, just no extra charge for this one. If you're talking to an unbeliever, don't talk to them about politics. When they're converted, you can tell them who to vote for. But, but before they're converted... Tell them about Jesus. Why? Why? Because the moment you go for the, you know who you should vote for, Bob the heathen? You shut off any opportunity to tell them about Jesus. I'm a political animal as much as the next guy. But know who's in front of you. And so the Apostle Paul knows who's in front of him. He doesn't have to guess. There are statues everywhere to false gods. So he leads with the main thing because they need the main thing. Right? Does that make sense? So that's where we're at. He's off in Athens, uh, Greece. And what we're looking at here, kind of I could, if I could, um, if I could um, maybe do like a macro view and then a micro view of what's going on. He, he, we're looking at a, a clash of two forms of wisdom. We're looking at the, cr- the clash or the war of the wisdom of man versus the wisdom of God. And so this is, this, is a, this is a Genesis 3, 1 through 8, 8. Certainly Genesis 3, 1 through 15. Genesis 3, 15 is the preaching of the gospel, the first preaching. Satan is against God, against Christ. The children of Satan are against the children of, of God and Christ. And they're, they're mutually, God said, I will establish this enmity, this warfare. That's what's here. So there are, there are two forms of wisdom in, in the world, and they're seen here uh, writ large in Athens. You have the wisdom of man, which is what's being essentially summarized with these Greek philosophers, and then you have the wisdom of God. But this, when we talk about man, man is not religiously neutral. Man is religious. Even atheists are flamingly religious. Well, I have atheists in my family, and they're never pitching a fit against the God of Islam or the Hindu gods. They're never pitching a fit about that. You say the name Jesus, and it's, they instantly foam at the mouth. It's the real God. This is a Romans 1, Romans 2. And why does an atheist foam at the mouth or spit, get spitting mad when he hears the name Jesus? Romans 1, Romans 2. They know. 
You're, you're not, this isn't the great, well, that's like you're worshiping the great pumpkin. Well, you don't get mad at the great pumpkin. But boy, howdy, when I say Jesus, you want to break furniture because you know. All people are really religious. But what we're looking at is anti-God man. Man apart from grace is against God. This is Romans 3, 8 through 18. All unconverted. I'm not picking on anybody. They may be nice as could be to you and all those good things. Unconverted people in their sin are against God. And that's what these, these philosophers rep represent. This is man against God. And what we have is God sending his gospeler, his man, his servant, to say that God is actually against anti-God man. Who's going to win in this clash, do you think? God's going to win. Book of Revelation. I'm, I've been here 22 years in January. In the first, I don't know, year, there were some kids from the PCC seminary. And the kid said to me, I'm preaching through the book of Revelation. I'm like, oh, vey. Who in their right mind? Like, this kid's not even at a seminary. He's picking the toughest book in the Bible. So I said, do you know what it's about? Well, it's about this and it's about that. I said, I'll tell you what it's about. We win. Jesus wins and we win in him. Amen to that. Amen to that. So when we see anti-God man coming against God and these two, the clash of two wisdoms, beloved, you could be a nervous Nelly like me. I am a nervous Nelly by constitution. Christ wins. And the Apostle Paul coins a phrase, we are super overcomers in him. It doesn't matter if you go to heaven trembling, you're going to get to heaven, just like Timothy. Me and Timothy are alike. Stressed out of our gourds, but we win in Christ. So when we look at the, the, these Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, if you know, I don't know what they do now. Uh, I grew up in Massachusetts, and we, we took Greek myth and Roman myth and all of those things in, in school when we were kids. The Greeks at this time, represented the highest form of wisdom, human wisdom, of their day. They were famous for their philosophers. What do you have? What are the big ones? Uh, Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. And I think Plato was a student of, of Socrates, and he was the teacher of Aristotle. And um, I think it's Socrates that they say he is the founder, the moral founder of Western culture. Um, I wish that wasn't true. I hope it's not true, but I, th I think that that's what it's said. Now, when you look at this, these are the brightest and the best of man. Th this is m the best wisdom that man can produce. It's here. And Christ is going to send his servant to talk to them. The best that man can produce, religiously and morally, are these guys. And what were they? They're pagans. They worship false gods and goddesses. They bow down to sticks and stones. But they're super smart. Super smart. But they bow down to half an elephant, half a man. Right? They're but the best that man can produce. Even as Christian people, I'm talking to brothers and sisters, we look at people and are like, boy, howdy, they're impressive. Ooh, that's impressive. Boy, is he impressive. The best that man can produce, religiously and morally, apart from the grace of God in Christ, is all darkness. Read Luther on these guys. Luther ripped Aristotle. I won't even say. He ripped Aristotle. Now, did, these, did, did the magisterial reformers read these guys? Yes, because they were well-read. 
Did they think these guys were serviceable to true religion? And the answer is a resounding no. I'll give you one from Luther. Luther said, Aristotle is the godless bulwark of the papists. He is to theology what darkness is to light. His ethics are the worst enemy of grace. Beloved, don't be impressed. I'm not saying don't be impressed with someone who's intellectually shrewd or gifted or those kinds. I'm not saying that. But let's not become smitten when we see these really smart unbelievers out there for us. Well, what about this and what about that? The best they can produce. Anti-God, pagan, anti-Christ, anti-holiness, all of these things. And here's the clash. So these men are against God and God sends them a gospel art. Does that make sense? So we esteem people properly, we honor them properly, but the best that men can do religiously apart from grace is they are blind guides. They're blind guides. I'm not going to talk about the guy who's running for president, faith, family, and whatever. Blind guides. Blind guides. Smartest guy in the room. Blind guides. Right? Right. And we as Christian people had to admire people for being smart, but not religiously. The only light that we could adhere to that's true. What is the beginning of all wisdom? The beginning of all wisdom is what? The fear of the Lord. The God of the Bible. So we have the wisdom of man. Now that wisdom is opposed to the wisdom of God. We have the wisdom of God now meeting this. This is what Paul is introducing. I'm going to read one uh, place from the book of uh, Corinthians. This is, this is Paul saying what to the Corinthians, essentially what he's going to tell the, the Athenians, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. This is what I, do we have a view on baptism? Yes. Is baptism the gospel? No, because the Bible says it isn't. But to preach the gospel not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. For the word of the cross, now this is to the worldly wise man. Listen to this. For the word of the cross is what to the worldly wise man? Foolishness. To those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. In James later, I think James chapter 3, talks about there's a wisdom above, wisdom which is personified in Christ, which is good and holy and lovely and peaceable. And then there's a wisdom below. He's not saying there isn't a wisdom. And what wisdom is that? It's earthly. It's demonic. You could find these men, Aristotle and so on, promoting homosexuality and all of these other things. Wait a minute. You're the smartest, smartest guy in the room and you promote false gods and false goddesses and the abuse of the human body. Yes, in the same man, in the same man, because they're spiritually dead. They're not spiritually alive. And so we see the cross, the message of the cross, which is to us what? It's our life. My, my wife and I were just down in or- Orlando, and as you come up off of, uh, I don't know what it is, 401, 408 or something, coming off up onto Good Homes Road, there is like a 200-foot cross. It's a Pentecostal church. I love them. And you're like, yes. Anywhere you see the cross, you're like, yes, I love that. I don't care Pentecostals, I love them. Look at that cross. For the Christian, the, Christ is our life. We live for him, we die for him. But to the unbeliever, it doesn't make any sense at all. It doesn't mean they're stupid. It means that spiritually they're dead. Hence, God sends his servant to make them spiritually alive, the elect ones at least. 
So there are two wisdoms in the world, one from above and one from below, and there's a clash. And I want you to see in this text, again, we're just doing the macro view, we're flying over the trees, how the clash occurs. It actually is, it, it occurs proactively done by God. God in Christ. Christ sends his gospeler, his servant, Paul, after he's chased off from the other places, I want you to go talk to those people that don't love me. I want, I want you to go talk to those people that hate me. They teach false gods and they're leading people away from the true God. I want you to go talk to them. That's called proactive. Now, I, I know there is the place. Where is it? 1 Peter chapter 3, I think. So if someone comes to you, you're a believer, anybody who's over than five years old, if you are a Christian, you love Jesus, he's your only hope in life and death, his, he's purchased you with his precious blood, not a hair from your head falls to the ground, but everything is subservient to the will of God. Heidelberg, I love the Heidelberg. I love Heidelberg. So that's you. You're a Christ lover and you're loved by Christ. And someone comes to you, I don't know who comes to you, they come to you. Say, hey, I've been watching you at work. Why do you love Jesus? The Bible says, when they ask you, what are you supposed to say? Let me tell you. Thank, thank you, Holy Spirit. I'm going to tell you. That's good and that's right. So when someone asks you, what, why do you have a hope that when you die, you go to be with God in Christ? Why? 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 Let me tell you. And then you see, well, the Bible says, and the Holy Spirit confirms to me that this is true. And then you share that with that person. That's what I would say is a reflexive or a responsive, responsive gospel witness. I would argue that way of witnessing the gospel is probably the most normative for most Christians. That reflexive, responsive. My wife would say, well, you know, you're the preacher. I'm the wife with the kids when they were home, and now I'm the, with the grandmother. And I understand that. God has a body, in 1 Corinthians 12, and he has different members in the body. Some members of the body have a strong back and strong mind. And then some members of the body have a mouth. And the mouth has to talk. Not everyone is the mouth. So that responsive, reflexive way of giving the gospel out is probably most normative for most Christians. So when your mom or your dad or your sister or your brother says, so you're not this anymore? You're that? How, how, do, how were you converted to that? And then what do you say? And I will say this. Pray for that. Pray for that. If you're like, well, no one ever asks me, then pray that they would ask you. And then pray, and then what should you pray? This, I'm not a Pentecostal, but I love Pentecostals. But when you pray for people to ask you about Jesus, you should pray what? Believing. Pray. Believing. Don't doubt. Jesus Christ, give me an opportunity to tell people about you. But that's only one side of the gospel coin. I do know people that say this. Well, Pastor, you can't, you can't proactively say, because First Peter chapter 3 says you have to reflexively wait till they ask you. No, 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 no. That's bad exegesis. That's only one side of the gospel coin. Sure, I'll totally wait until you can ask me, but while I'm waiting, I'm going to tell you. That's the proactive side. Why? Because I'm the mouth. I'm the mouth. Paul's the mouth. So I'm not picking on the other side, and that could be good in the perfect... In, we, we need to be wise. We need, we need to know who's in front of us. Are they unbelievers? And then know where they're at. Are they broken sinners? Are they defiant sinners? And, so, and, then, and then 
are these people that you should wait for. But again, Paul is an office bearer. Maybe this is a distinction. I'm not big on clergy lady distinction. Um, I don't go by the title reverend. I don't like that reverend title. I know Psalm, what is it, 111? Holy and reverend is his name. That's his name, not my name. I'm a fancy foot washer. I'm just Brother John, Pastor John, or Fred the carpet cleaner, whatever you want to call me, but not reverend. But there is a distinction of office bearer versus non-office bearer. Not everyone's an office bearer, but Paul is an office bearer. So what that means is he has been sent by Christ, given the authority of Christ, to proclaim the word of Christ in the name of Jesus. So if you say, well, that's not my bag. Well, that's his bag. He has to. And so everything that we have recorded in the Bible of evangelistic endeavors or missionary endeavors is of the proactive kind. Because you will hear people say, why, why do these Christians need to run around telling about everybody about Jesus? Because Jesus said to do what? To do it. So yes, wait, but not for the minister. The minister, the preacher, the evangelist has to be proactive. Because that's the commission that God has put on his life. And that's what we find recorded in all of scriptures. It's the proactive kind. And what this guy is doing, Paul, excuse me, he is confronting error. Now, none of us want to be obnoxious. Um, We want to be kind and thought highly of. And we don't want to say, you're wrong, I'm right. But that's exactly what Paul does. I'm going to say this. The Bible says this. An overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with teaching, so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. It's that part. That's the, the scary part that you have to be able to, as a minister, go up to the Mormon, the Jehovah's Witness, and say, Jesus isn't the Archangel Michael. Jesus isn't the spirit brother of Satan. Jesus doesn't play second fiddle to the Virgin Mary. Jesus is God come in the flesh, the second person of the Godhead. Only he is the way, the truth, and the life. Not these false gods. And here's where the Bible says it. And that's the charge upon Paul. Now let's look at... um, the motivation and the method of the gospel preacher. So Paul gets to Athens. He's been chased off of, um, of Berea. He gets to Athens. Silas and Timothy are going to wrap up the gospel work, and then they're going to meet him in Athens. And what we see here in our passage is the Apostle Paul is walking around the city, and he's taking in the sights and, 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 and the smells and everything of the city. And what he sees is the city is filled chocolate block with statues of false gods. And the Bible uses, a, it's a unique word. Uh, it's, is it parox, paroxysm? Is a, is a medical term? It's like a sudden attack. He's grieved, but he's provoked to jealousy and anger for God, and he's grieved for the, the loss, the spiritual loss of these people. But that's what's happening. In this particular false religion of the day, they had a bunch of gods and goddesses. The 12 main ones were living on Mount Olympus. I won't bore you with their names. Sometimes, like in the, the King James, it will say Mars Hill. Mars is the Roman for the Greek Ares. And you remember from when we were kids, they would teach you Zeus and all this stuff. 
That's what's at. His heart, his spirit is provoked within him. And he's angry at the dishonor of God, at the worship of false gods. And he's grieved that there are people actually believing in these false gods. What will happen to a person who believes in a false god and they die in that estate? What do you think? Like, really? If they're really good and they really try to follow their false religion as best as they can, but they're good people, but they still worship a stick, where will they go? If you don't believe that, which is what Paul ends with, then go home. If that's not true, we, we, if that's not true, if that's not true, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, then everybody here in this room, and me especially, we're the most foolish people on the planet. If Jesus went to the cross and you could sneak into heaven through Buddha or Muhammad or Sai Baba or any of these, if you could sneak in, but he's not the way, the truth, and the life, then why did he say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? You see? It's the offense of the cross. It's the offense of the exclusive claims of Christ. If you believe that, and you tell somebody you believe that, they're going to shut your business down, you're not getting the promotion, you're getting kicked out of the military, you're going to have five people in a house cat in your church. If you actually believe that, but it's true. And that's what's happening here. And this man, is, he's waiting for the guys to come. And we, we learn something about the Apostle Paul. The Puritans would say about ministers that they should be men of one thing. They should be men of one thing. They should be devoted to Christ. Devoted to the Word. That's it. They're not saying that you can't be bivocational or anything like that. But what they're saying is that you should be absorbed with Christ, especially the Gospel. The, the Gospel of the Cross as J. I know J.I. Packer can say, he calls it the gospel of the cross, the gospel of justification by faith alone, which is why I love him. Paul's a man of one thing. And as he's walking around waiting, if you were a man of one thing or a woman of one thing, let's just say you're passionate about something. Most of us are passionate about something, right? Let's say you're passionate about fill in the blank. You're a marathoner. And as you're passionate about being a marathoner, my wife, as you're passionate about being a marathoner, I'm going to eat. Well, I can't eat that. You want to go to macaroni? You want, where did we go the other day? Oh, what's the place with the 5,000 calorie desserts? Cheesecake Factory. And I wish they didn't write on the dessert 5,000 calories. So I told my wife, don't look at that and get an extra one because I want to eat it later. But if you're a person of one thing and you see 5,000 calories next to the Oreo cookie thing, what are you thinking? Well, I can't eat that because it's not going to help my run. No, no. <laughs> Yes, but when you're a person of one thing, everything is serviceable to that one thing, right? Your diet, your sleep, your this, your that. Paul is a man of one thing. So as he's walking around the city waiting for the fellow guys, waiting is never waiting. Waiting is working. His waiting is an active working, an active waiting. He is working while he's waiting. And what is he doing? Look at these false gods. Look at these pagan gods. Look at these statues. And it's working within him the motivation to, do, to go from the waiting work, which is the learning work, to the speaking work. It's like being a fisherman. I grew up on Cape Cod. And when you see the stripers of the blues running, you're looking for the fish and all this. 
If you're a man of one thing, what are you doing? Where are the fish at? I need new tackle. I need new techniques because you're a man of one thing. This gospel er, Paul, is a man of one thing. And so he's provoked by all of these false gods and it moves him to open his mouth. Sometimes we think like this. All, we, we, we go like this. Pain is bad. Pleasure is good. That's not true. We say, well, I have bad feelings. Don't, don't even reason like that. Bad feelings can be the best thing in the world for you to have. You know what I mean. Sometimes we do this. My parents were not big on this. They were big. We, we, my parents parented by guilt, which is why I am the way I am, but I'm not picking on my parents. But now we, buttercup, don't ever feel bad about yourself, buttercup. Buttercup could have just robbed a bank, and we don't want buttercup to feel bad about themselves. No, no, no. If Buttercup robs a bank, do you want them to feel bad about themselves? Yes. Why? So they repent. All bad feelings are not bad. Feeling bad for your sin is the best thing in the world. Why? Because it drives you to Christ. And feeling bad that there are unbelievers worshiping false gods is is the best thing. Why? Because it opens your mouth to tell them about Jesus. Most of us could say, and I said this one time, you know, I don't hate anybody. There's nobody on this planet I hate, and I feel, I'm feeling good about myself. And then my wife quickly said, but do you positively love them? Well, no, I don't positively love them, but I was feeling good about myself that I didn't hate them. Most of us don't hate, hate, hate people because we're just so busy thinking about ourselves, we don't have time to hate people. Imagine if you looked at an unbeliever worshiping a stick and a stone. They don't worship Christ. And you wanted to weep for them. What would that move you to do? To tell them about Christ. Don't run from pain. Don't think pain is bad. Pain could be the best thing in the world. Read Hebrews chapter 12. It drives us off of our sin. It drives us to our Christ. It produces the peaceable fruits of righteousness. And so he goes, as is customary, he goes to the Jews first, then he goes to the Gentiles. I want you to see something that the Apostle Paul does. He can talk about Jesus to the Jews. He can talk about Jesus to the, the regular Jews in the, in the synagogue, to the Gentile Jews in the synagogue. He can talk to the rabbis and all of the, the Sadducees and the scribes. Then he can go to the market to talk to the, to the regular Gentiles in the market. And what is he talking to them about? Christ. Then he can talk to the professors of his day, the, the, the creme de la creme of the intelligentsia. This is the Apostle Paul. Jesus to the bricklayer, Jesus to the professor, Jesus to the woman, Jesus to the guy, Jesus to the Jew, Jesus to the Gentile. That's Paul. That's Paul. And so he, he speaks to these men. We meet these two other forms of, 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 of philosophical groups, the Epicureans and the Stoics. Epicureans were, oh, I used to remember. So living for pleasure. Epicurus taught that the, the main end of life the chief end of, of the purpose of man was to live for pleasure. What country would that kind of look like? <laughs> we, we are Epicureans. We're Epicureans. Self-pleasure is the chief end of man. That was them. And he's talking to them about Jesus. But the Stoics were like, no, it's not pleasure. And they weren't against material, the material physical pleasure. But it had to serve virtues. And the virtues were like uh, courage and wisdom and those kind of things. So self-virtue was the chief end of man. 
There are Christians I know, you might even have, the I don't know, stoic sayings at your house on the coffee table. Self-pleasure, self-virtue, by self. That's a Genesis 3, 1 through 8. You can be God. You think, like, boy, these two groups are totally, totally different. I've said this a million times. You probably want to kill me. Pick your most flaming antichrist Democrat and then pick your most flaming antichrist Republican. If they die like that, they're going to be rubbing elbows together for eternity. They're on the same team. And you think, no, they're not. Oh, yes, they are. Oh, yes, they are. What's the thing that's up? The cross. Preach the cross to the self-pleasure guy. No. Preach the cross to the Mr. Stoic guy. No. They're on the same team. This is why we as Christians, we need to open our eyes. They're totally different, Pastor. They're on our side. Oh, no, they're not. No, they're not on our side. Mention Jesus, and you're going to see how fast they're not on our side. Am I right with that? I am right with that. I've said this a bunch before. Watch John MacArthur, dispensationalist genius, by the way, share Jesus with Ben Shapiro from Isaiah 53. Ben Shapiro, everybody loves Ben Shapiro because he's conservative. But Ben Shapiro doesn't love Jesus. John MacArthur throws it over the plate. That's why God has blessed that guy's socks, by the way. So do I vote like the other guy? Yes. But is that guy on my team? Oh, no, because I'm on the Jesus team. Self-pleasure, self-improvement by self. And what does the preacher come and say? Oh, no, the chief end of man is not living for self. The chief end of man is not to rely upon self. The chief end of man is what? To look to God in Christ. To rely, rely on self. None of these philosophers, what, none of them are talking about what? The God of the Bible. That he's a holy God. And that we are what? Unholy sinners. How, how much of an unholy sinner we are? We're dead. Greek necros. You see, this kind of stuff, philosophy, this is AA. I was in AA my, like, my whole life. Everybody I loved was in AA. It's self-improvement. It's self-help. This is B.F. Skinner. Right? Behaviorism. Christianity says, you're dead. You're blind. You're deaf. You're dumb. Only Christ can make you white as snow. This is not bootstraps. This is, we don't have boots. We don't have straps. We don't have hands. We don't have ankles. We don't have feet. We're dead. And he says this to the smartest guys in the room. And as he's preaching, he's already been preaching Christ and the resurrection. He's already been preaching that. And he says to these guys, I perceive that you're very religious. Now remember, these are the smartest guys in the room. When, when someone worships their intellect and you tell them they're really smart, what do they do? No, 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 please, I'm not that smart. No, 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 please, please, I'm not that smart. I mean, uh, right? The worst thing you can do to say to a person that thinks they're smart is they're wrong. He goes, I perceive that you guys are very religious. And they're going, yeah, that's us, Paul. And then what's the very next thing he says? What you worship in? Ignorance. You don't know what you're talking about. Wow, Paul, you didn't go to the right seminary. Didn't you listen to Jesus? Yes, he did listen to Jesus. Remember when Jesus went to save the woman at the Samaritan well, John 4? What did he say? We Jews worship what we know. 
Salvation is of the Jews. You Gentiles worship what? In ignorance. Now this is where this is going to get. This is why people don't do the proactive side. We wait for the person to say. The proactive side is going to get you in a jam. When you meet the person of another religion and you say to them, hey, wow, you worship, wow, that's a nice statue that you worship. And I have something to tell you. This statue isn't God. You're wrong. That's what's going to get you into a jam. And that's what Paul says. Does he, does he tell them the truth? Yes. Does he tell them the truth in love? And then he talks about God being the God who made heaven and earth and that he's not, a, he's not to be worshipped by sticks and stones. And I, I want to say this. What he gets around to after he's preached God in Christ, the resurrection, he tells the people something which is really, really going to get you in a jam. He uses the repent word. Repent of what? Sin. Metanoia. Have a change of mind. Turn from your sin. Hate your sin and bring your sin to Jesus. If there's anything to get you kicked out of that audience... It's using the repent word. And he says repent. And then he concludes his sermon, which he would get an F in most seminaries if he did this. Because you're never supposed to end on a bad note. They tell you this in seminary. Always end on something happy. I don't know. So he ends. How does he end? Judgment day. Paul did not... Asher. Asher doesn't want me preaching on Judgment Day. He, he ends with Judgment Day. He ends that there's going to be a Judgment Day. And all frivolity aside, you know, all of us have family and friends that we love that don't love Christ. All, everybody in this room. I do. I, everybody in this room. This is not... You have your view, you have your gods, I have the true and the living God. It's all going to work out okay. It's not going to work out okay. There really is a judgment day. I know you're not supposed to say this in the church anymore. I know that. But I'm not answerable to the church, I'm answerable to to Christ. There really is a judgment day. There, There really is a judgment day. The dead in Christ will rise. We're going to be given bodies and we're, all of us are going to stand before the throne of Christ. Everyone. Everyone on the planet. You're either going to be in Christ and on the right side as a sheep or you're going to be out of Christ as a goat on the left side. Everyone. So th- th- this is where when you see the talking heads and they mock the Christians, blah, 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 I'm going to do what I'm going to do. No, you're not going to do what you're going to do. You're going to be standing before Judge Christ. So here's what the preacher says. If you come to Christ now, how will you find Jesus? As a Savior. If you say no to Him, how will you find Christ? As a judge. As a judge. Beloved, I pray I'm talking to a whole group of people that have found Christ as our Savior. But to die in unbelief, you you will find Christ as a holy judge. And you'll hear depart. And that's, that was how Paul concluded a sermon. And then he kept moving. Come to Christ and be saved. Stay apart from Christ. And you'll be judged for your sins. And he kept going. Beloved, that's the work of the gospel minister. 
to find Christ as a Savior today or you will meet him as a judge through all eternity. Sobering news. Please pray for me. Please pray for the ministry. But sobering news. May God be pleased with the preaching of his word.